is the right wing funnier than the left wing now? Is the right wing even funny at all? Well, uh, let's talk about it. We got two experts here uh, who think that maybe they are. Um, I partly agree, partly massively disagree. So it'll be a fun conversation. Matt Sinkowitz is associate professor at Boston College, and Nick Marks is associate professor at Colorado State University. And they have a book out called That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. So uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. No problem. So before we get to the agreement, let's start with the fun disagreement. I'm gonna challenge you guys to name one, not name, or say one funny joke from the right wing ever. And my guess is you're not going to be able to do it even though you wrote a whole book about it. Well, you know, we don't disagree as much as you might think. You know, we, we called the book "That's Not Funny" for multiple reasons, uh, and certainly, to be clear, you know, the book is, is definitely not making an effort to convince uh, anyone, let alone you know, progressive or, or liberal readers, uh, that the right is funny. Uh, there are some characters we write about in this book uh, who um, you know do you know create comedy that, that occasionally we, we appreciate. And, and uh, do I want to retell any of their jokes? Probably, probably not. Uh, but I mean, to be clear, you know, our argument is is sort of less uh, trying to convince anybody that something uh, is funny. Uh, you know, we're we're liberals ourselves. We we tend to want to be kind of possessive about comedy too. Um, so we can, we can, I guess, talk about some of those examples that we do find a little bit less bad. But what we definitely want to argue is that the right uses comedy and it uses it effectively to mobilize its coalition. Right? It's not going to make you laugh. It's Probably didn't make us laugh all that many times during the the writing of the book, but we argue it's nonetheless a powerful force in American politics now, whether we find it funny or not. Yeah, and that's where we're going to have the agreement. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. But it, Nick, you tell me. I mean, my sense of it is right wing comedy is ha ha. Look at them; they look different than us. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's less about the crafting of a joke that's got a setup and a punchline. And it's more about a collective ownership of the libs. The comedic strain that we outline in the book is one of uniting lots of different disparate right-wing voices, not necessarily under the same sort of right-wing ideology, although that's common, but it's in an ownership of the libs in order to achieve political outcomes, in order to recruit and attract younger, especially male um, adherents to right-wing causes. If you look at the listenership for a show like the Joe Rogan experience, he's done very well in attracting that very lucrative demographic. Not always with the same sort of right-wing thought that you might find with something like the Babylon Bee or Gutfeld on Fox News. Yeah, so look, a lot of the humor, it seems to me, is can be categorized as trolling, which they're really good at. I'll give them credit for that, right? Yep. And they have mastered that art infinitely better than the left has for the moment being. And the young left is rising, and we're pretty good at trolling too. I shouldn't put myself in the young <laughs> category, but at least the left category. Um, and and a lot of the comedy is bullying, right? Like, oh, we like they get a big kick, they get a laugh out of. Hey, we uh, Gamergate. Uh, we intimidated these women, uh, and isn't it funny that we had to, they had to move their house? 
because they were worried that we were going to rape them. Because we're not really going to rape them, but we made them think that we were going to rape them. Oh, isn't that hilarious, right? So, yeah, again, look, am I wrong about that? That seems to be the predominant strain of comedy in the right way. So uh, that is a big thing that we discuss in the book, and that that is a, a major source. And I think that's probably the part of right wing comedy that people more towards the left tend to be more familiar with. Um, uh, there's certainly that. I mean, we talk about that, you know, uh, extensively in the book. That piece is there. Uh, but as you, I think, noted in the question, uh, it's you know it's hard to get. You don't want to give credit for such things. It can be done skillfully, if not sort of morally. Um, it can be uh, you know sort of knowing the tropes of the internet, how to get people to react. Um, you know that is a skill that's that's predominant on the right. Um, you know there are other forms of comedy that we we argue things that you know sort of seem irrelevant perhaps from the left, but uh, you know sort of the the world of old school hackneyed. You know we would call them sort of you know dull or outmoded comedians. Uh, we we t we call them uh, uh, the paleo comedians. People like Tim Allen and uh, yeah, maybe Bill Burr sort of moving in that direction. Uh, people who use comedy in in different ways to express you know cultural conservatism. Um, sort of uh, you know harken back to a time where sort of only only old white dads got to make the jokes. Uh, you know, there's a range. I mean, we certainly uh, acknowledge, and and you're right. I mean, a, a good bit of what you would call sort of innovative, skillful comedy on the right comes in the form of these aggressive trolling maneuvers. Uh, you know, done with more or less skill. Uh, there's other pieces there. Um, you know, there's a whole world that's just very into sort of. You know, they sort of uh, categorize it as free speech libertarianism, but it's really just an excuse to uh, you know say as many you know offensive words as you can. I mean, we don't disagree. We would just say that there might be more range there than you're familiar with, if you know you sort of aren't delving deeply into the subject. Yeah, no, but actually, Matt, you just did it. You you did actually name someone that that I respect as a comedian, and that does sometimes do conservative humor, which is Bill Burr. Um, so like Rogan and Bill Maher now do say a lot of conservative things. But they're not actually making a joke. They're just like, oh, we hate trans people, we hate Muslim people, isn't that funny? No, not really. I mean, just because you laugh afterwards doesn't make it funny. But Bill Burr does do actual comedy, and he's not necessarily conservative. I have honestly have no idea what his political affiliation is, but I will see him make a conservative joke, and it's funny, right? So, so I, I did, hey, we found it. <laughs> Even if he's not conservative, and I don't know what he is, right? At least he does do funny jokes. So credit where credit is due. But guys, let's get to the agreement now. Um, and this is really, really important. It's not a light thing. It looks like the Republicans are having more fun now. Um, and now that's different than being funny, uh, but they don't mind being lighthearted. They don't mind joking around about serious stuff. Whereas the left has gotten really scared to joke about sensitive stuff or almost any stuff, right? Like, sure, still the overwhelming majority of comedians are on the left. Sure, they still have tons and tons of jokes and it's funny and etc. But there is definitely a little bit of recalcitrance, a pullback. And certainly on the political side, between Trump and Hillary Clinton, there was no question that Trump was having more fun. So is that is that something you guys have identified as actually affecting politics too? Yeah, I think you've nailed it on the head with the Trump having more fun side of the equation. There's no doubt that he had the stage presence 
and the persona of an entertainer, right? The host of an extremely popular reality TV series. He knew how to do crowd work, how to turn members of the audience against other members of the audience. There was a timing and a rhythm to his delivery going off of the teleprompter in the way that a comedian would sort of improvise. But the bigger point you're making is even more important, I think, and it's that the left is ceding ideological territory to the right in their self-censorship or in their lack of adventurousness in comedy today. Instead, what you see is the boundary pushing, even though it may end up in the avowed racism, sexism territories that you've identified, that boundary pushing is much more common on the right today than it is in the liberal comedy world. And we identify that in the book as a really dangerous area for potential developments, right? We, we cannot see the ideological territory that we've held on to for the last 20 years. Yeah, so Matt, I had a, a, somebody tell me once, it was actually on Ben Glebe's old TV show. Ben now does the some shows with us from time to time. But anyways, I think it was one of his producers. They had a theory that whoever was funnier in a presidential contest would always win. And and they took me through all the contests. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, that's not that's not that bad a theory. And and it's not necessarily because they're funnier. My thesis is that it's because it makes them more likable. Like they seem like more of a regular person instead of a corporate robotic politician. I will give you serious talking points. You know, you must. You know, give all the money to corporations, they are wonderful, right? Whether they're Republican or Democrat, that's boring and we hate it. Plus it sucks, but uh, but is, is that the phenomenon you're seeing here? That Trump doesn't have to be like funny on purpose, he could be accidentally funny. But when he mm-hmm. says things like, oh, the Puerto Rico is surrounded by water, a big water, ocean water, he's an idiot, so we laugh. It's like a Will Ferrell character, but at least people can relate to it and it looks like he's having fun, whereas Hillary Clinton looks like a stiff, if I'm being real. I mean, I think there's there's something to that, absolutely. You know, politics is is you know it's it's a party, right? It is a, it is a thing you join with other people. Um, you know, communities need to be built. I, I think having a person who, uh, you know, people I don't know if it's relate to, but they they can have fun with is a big advantage. Uh, I also think it's an advantage in political coalition building. Uh, one of the great things, or well, depends where you come from, could be a very bad thing, uh, that comedy does is, is it, it can unite people who have different ideas sort of in making fun of somebody else, right? And this is one of the things that the, the Republican coalition has done such a great job on, right? Uh, you know, to bad ends and to my, my estimation. Uh, but taking, you know, people who have really different political beliefs, conservative Christians and these libertine you know, whatever we want to call Trump and his morality and all that. People who really shouldn't have much to do with each other, right? Who should disagree on almost everything, but they can agree on sort of having these jokes, right? Mocking the characters on the left they don't like, or just sort of engaging in this free-spirited, uninhibited space. And so I think there's a lot to this idea that if the head of a party invites people to put aside some of their specific differences. And instead, focus on making jokes about somebody else, or simply just sort of, you know, having having fun together. I mean, that that's very powerful. Yeah, we're out of time, but but I, I don't want anybody to get me confused. Matt's right. I mean, I don't find Trump relatable at all. I I can't relate to a guy who inherited four hundred thirteen billion dollars, 
bungled it away and then blamed everyone else as a you know, blithering moron and a hateful person. But yes, some people just by his style that don't agree with us necessarily, maybe independents, etc., find that more likable than a robotic politician, which is intensely unlikable. And I mean, I can't, anybody remember the last time Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi made a joke? Okay, I mean, God, what's, what a collection of stiffs. So, so I think it's affecting the body politic in a lot of ways. I think your book shows that one, by the way, making maybe peeling off some independence, they need to win elections. But number two, as you just pointed out, Matt, unifying them, because the one thing that unifies the evangelicals, family, so-called family values and, and the trolls and all of that is, we don't like the others. So if you're making fun of the others, oh, okay, we like that, now we're in. Screw family values, we're making fun of the others, I couldn't, they couldn't be happier, right? And so that's, it's, it's identity politics in the form of humor. And I always put that in quotes, because it's, it's really, again, as the title of your book is, that's not funny, <laughs> but, but they like it. Uh, and, and it's certainly more lighthearted. Uh, than what's happening on the other side. So the book is called That's Not Funny, How the Right Makes Comedy Work for Them. Uh, Matt and Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks thank for having you. Me. All right, can we get past the neoliberals? Uh, they've been causing uh, tons of headaches. We talked about it uh, recently in regards to the French elections, but certainly in America uh, and all throughout the world, uh, it has led to a series of problems. Well. Our next guest is going to help us sort that out. It's Dr. Derek Hamilton. He's the Henry Cohen Professor of Economics and Urban Policy and the founding director of the Institute on Race, Power and Political Economy at the New School. And we have a new series with them, which you can check out at tyt.com slash shows. But Dr. Hamilton, welcome. Thank you, pleasure to be on your show. No problem. So I love that you're doing this series and I love that you're doing this series with us. So I appreciate it and the series is called Visions of a Post Neoliberal Future. So talk to me about this wonderful place of, of, one of great fantasies of post neoliberal future. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and, and you know, let me begin with gratitude. Also, I, you know, you are the perfect partner to do this with. So, so thank you for that. Thank um, you. And we, what, what we like a lot about it is uh, visions of a post neoliberal future. So it's not just about causes and consequences. We, we, we can talk to we're blue in the face about uh, what are the consequences of a world where uh, we have such concentrated uh, resources and and uh, political divisions. But the the big thing and a key point is that this need not be our destiny. That we can reimagine a different future. That we really can have nice things. That we really can commit to economic inclusion, civic engagement, and social equity. And we 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 invite people in. We deal with students and we produce lectures to really put forth that vision. So, who are some of the folks that have come in, and what have been some of the topics that they've discussed? So, the venerable. Uh, Senator Nina Turner, she's one of our highlights. We've had Angela Glover Blackwell. We've had Ajin Ajin Poo come in. We've we've had um, a myriad of people, and uh, they come from various various frameworks. I mean, uh, uh, Angela Glover Blackwell, she has led with the notion of curb cutter effects, like what the ways in which something as transformative as or something as simple as 
literally uh, cutting the curb uh, associated with disability rights uh, led to improvements for all of us. And then uh, we, we all know Senator Nina Turner and what she does. So she brings the power and the vision grounded in justice about ways in which government should commit to its fiduciary responsibility of really promoting sustainability, not just in our environment, but sustainability and flourishing for people to be their best selves. So Dr. Hamilton, I'm curious you know, how you see this dichotomy because in the way I see it, a lot of progressive activists are perfectly aware of what neoliberal means and and the problems that it's created, austerity programs, etc. But when you talk to folks in the establishment, whether they're democratic politicians or mainstream media folks, I'm not even sure they're aware of what neoliberal means, let alone the harms that it has caused. Do you see that dichotomy? Oh, no doubt. I mean. And, and what we're working against, against is a long trajectory of a social movement that has got us here. So we view the world as being solved by market and marketized solutions uh, to the extent of whether the problems are economic or otherwise and can't imagine anything else. We've been, it's almost a religion, right? So it's almost as if we have adopted some notion that the best way for people to engage in society is to be incentivized by or sanctioned by this proverbial market. And what the problem of this framework is and that thought is that it has no notion of power, no notion of the fact that, and I'm an economist, so I might get jargony. We're not all just simple price takers or running around as unfettered agents that are guided by some free will into fair and efficient distribution. That's a religion almost, that is a, a, a fantasy. Um, and, and you know whether you're on the right side or the left side, one thing that we should all agree upon is that anytime somebody engages in a transaction and they have nothing by which to uh, negotiate with or transact with. In other words, if you're, if you're trying to negotiate with your employer and you're faced with that threat of unemployment, that you're that if, if you don't accept the terms of that job, you're gonna not be able to feed your family. That's not a fair exchange. You are simply at the whim of exploitation or the whim of charity. So reimagine a world where, regardless of ideology, that people have a basic right, a basic economic right to certain things like a job, like income, like health care, like the right to schooling. This is not so radical. This is justice, and that that is largely what the the course is about. And by the way, if you guys want to find it on our website, go to tyt.com and click on shows. New school's right above old school. Okay, so we have a show called Old School, and and visions of a post neoliberal future are from the new school, quite literally. So, you know, what you mentioned there, Derek, it's it's basically a worldview. You know, you call it almost a religion, but it's it's a world. It's how they see the world, and they've united around that idea, and and it drives them. So, and, and neoliberal to me, unfortunately, is a confusing term because people think, oh, liberal. A lot of folks haven't caught on. They think that that means the left, and that means progressive, when it doesn't mean that at all, right? And a lot of Republicans are neoliberals. 
and and unfortunately corporate Democrats. But what, what I was gonna lead to there is, is it hurting the left politically that they will not acknowledge, the, the democratic establishment will not acknowledge the concept of neoliberalism. So it's it's driving the electorate to, well, I know that isn't working for me. I, I know I don't have the same economic power as my boss. I know my uh, that they say there's not enough money for my wages, but I just saw the boss got $60 million exit package, right? And when the Democrats, the establishment Democrats tell folks, no, don't believe your lying eyes, everything is great. Uh, does that drive people to the right and, and, and hence is terribly counterproductive? You know, I, I would I would have to agree with that. I mean, I, n- nobody wants to be a victim, uh, and this the the rhetoric around people having choice and agency and freedom, and and that's what the right was really good at, and that's how the right was, you know, pretty successful in adopting this notion of freedom, ad- adopting this concept of you know even the word liberalization, uh, free of the tyranny of government. But it's an inadequate notion of freedom. It's a notion of whether we actually have achieved it or not, political freedom, civil freedom. But the element of freedom that's negated and not paid enough attention to is economics. The actual having some power, some resources to begin with. So, you know, to me, that is the problem. And that is the the, the left trying to avoid sounding with that dirty word in our society, socialism versus capitalism, which think I would say are largely academic concepts to begin with. In practice, there there is no there is no capitalism when we bail out the banks as a result of the Great Recession. That's not capitalism. And you know, obviously, Social Security is one of the most successful programs in America, and that is a government-run program. So I'm being long-winded, but let me sum it up. I think when we get back to a notion of an economic rights framework, an inclusive economic rights framework, that takes us out of the partisan divides. Because what it is saying is that I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. And now I care, I have a preference, I have a view of the world order. But again, I'd like to emphasize that if we're talking about fairness, then people should not be hungry. If we're talking about fairness, then people should be able to get educated. And then if you want to have a market economy, go at it. You know, if you want to have some deregulation, go at it. But let's ensure first and foremost that government fulfills its fiduciary responsibility, which is to its people and make sure that people have adequate income, a job. I'm redundant, but these are basic rights that I think take us out of the partisan divides. Yeah, look, I've said it a thousand times on the show, but if my dad didn't get a free college education back in Turkey in the 1960s, we'd still be olive farmers in southeastern Turkey, right? So that gave you equality of opportunity. And here, this many years later, 60 years later, in America, in the richest country in the world, we can't get anywhere near the opportunity my dad had as a farmer in Turkey. That's unbelievable. It's and and it's impossible to make the case that we don't have enough money, richest country in the history of the world. So, but I got to ask you again, not again, but like to follow up on those questions. Um, how do we get there? I, I know that that's not necessarily what everybody's yeah. talking about in the series, and there's a number of different speeches, right? But in your opinion, Dr. Hamilton, 
How do we get to that neoliberal future? And, and you, and you know, I, use, I use the word religion on purpose because it's a view that, that, that is unchallenged. It, it, it is a, a, a dogma. But how do we get there? Well, first we commit to justice. First we realize that it is our government, it is our economy, and it is our monetary system that can facilitate our government to fulfill the economy we want. In other words, we get to define what the economy is. We get to choose if we're gonna emphasize GDP per capita without any notion of distribution or equity, or if we wanna choose an economy that really promotes economic inclusion and everyone civically engaged and social equity. We get to choose, so, so that's thing one. And then thing two, we need to recognize, well, what, are, what is the big obstacle? Race, the ways in which we subdivide people and are able to abstract from a politically dominant group in a way that seemingly is against their interests. So, so I'll try to break that down. People not only care about where they are in a vertical dimension, they also care about their horizontal positioning. So the more despair we have, the more inequality we have, the more someone can come along and talk about building walls to solidify something like the property rights and whiteness, to solidify the relative status of a dominant political group. So to get to this gold star, we need a society that facilitates economic rights just like political rights and civil rights. And we need a society that commits to justice because it's the right thing to do so that we're not vulnerable to fascism because of economic despair and being able to pit one group against the next. Yeah, that's exactly what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about right before they assassinated him. And by the way, also what Fred Hampton was talking about right before they assassinated him. So. And and I want people to understand what Dr. Hamilton talked about there. I just real quick, I know we're out of time, but I'm reading the book Sapiens. I know I'm seven years late, but and and it's a great great book. Everybody should read it. And and one of the things that it clarifies is that different societies throughout different areas and different time periods have stratified in different ways. So in India, for example, there's a caste system. From where I'm from, the Ottomans, they did it based on religion. So the Muslims would be at the top, and then you'd have a certain stratification. Unfortunately, in America, we did that same exact thing, but we did it by race. And so that is why race still haunts us to today. And that is why it is intertwined with economic issues, because it was supposed to be intertwined. And and that's what led to the stratification in the first place. Look, I love smart conversations like this. And if you guys do too, Check out the series, okay, tyd.com slash shows. And, and obviously, we happen to be partnering with them, but the, the actual speeches are at the new school. And so, Dr. Derek Hamilton, thank you for doing this series in the first place, and thank you for partnering with us. We appreciate it. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Absolutely.